Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And my very special guest today is Mark McLeod of SurePath Capital. Welcome, Mark. Hey, Scott. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks. So we've been friends for many years. We originally met uh, when I was at Lighthouse and you were at FreshBooks and we had the opportunity to work together there, which was awesome. And now you're on, you started your own firm. It's super cool. It's called SurePath Capital. Do you want to kind of tell folks what SurePath is and, and how you got there? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so first of all, great to be here, Scott. And uh, yeah, I'd love to talk about SurePath. And I think the best way to understand SurePath is maybe to understand my journey, because uh, I've been around a lot longer than SurePath has. So why don't I go back to the beginning, but go really quickly. So I'm, You uh, look like you haven't been around that long. You still look young. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Every gray hair has been earned. <laughs> trust me. So, so I'm a CPA by training. I spent uh, six years in that world, three doing audit, which was boring and painful, three doing corporate finance, which was better. I got into the whole venture back startup world in the late 90s and kind of never left. So spent 14 years as CFO for a number of venture back software startups and had the whole range of outcomes from a company that went public to one of those 10x returns that investors are looking forward to writing off 11 a million of capital on one company alone and everything in between. And uh, along the way, I started to specialize in software as a service companies generally and SaaS for SMB, so small, mid-sized businesses specifically. Yep. And so the last two companies I was CFO for were uh, Shopify and, of course, most recently FreshBooks, where you and I met. Mm -hmm. And in between those two, I actually went to the dark side for three years <laughs> and helped create uh, Real Ventures, which is Canada's largest and most active seed stage venture fund. And there I did most of our SaaS and e-commerce investments. So companies like Unbounce on the SaaS side. Oh, and, I didn't uh, guys are Unbounce. That's a good yeah. company. Yeah. And uh, Frank and Oak on the e-commerce oh, yeah, side. Yeah. Um, we've done companies like Breather, like lots of really cool companies. And I had the chance to invest in Breather and I just didn't do it. And I, that was a huge mistake. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's definitely an anti-portfolio for me. Oh, God, I wish I would have done that. So anyway, if you, lots of operating, uh, lots of focus on SaaS and, you know, some time on the investment side. And uh, when I left FreshBooks just about two years ago, I decided to take all of that experience and create kind of a unique advisory firm. And uh, so I reflected back on all that time in the space. I kind of felt there were two needs that I could build a firm around. You know, one is kind of on the fundraising side. I think it's never easy to raise any capital, but relatively speaking, easier to raise seed in Series A where you could still pitch the dream. Yeah. Harder to raise those growth rounds where all the boxes have to be checked. And so helping companies prepare for and raise growth capital is half of what we do. Mm -hmm. And then the other half is kind of a growing exit practice. And what I saw on the M&A side over the years is the really kind of credible name brand investment banks tended not to touch any deal that was less than $70 million in enterprise yep. value for the, the boutique firms and $100 million up for the global mm -hmm. firms. But unfortunately, most exits are well south of that. Yep. And uh, so for companies that don't want to be the next Shopify or never could be, which, by the way, is most companies... Mm -hmm. I felt they had no one credible to turn to. So I like to think of us as a non-sketchy investment bank, really, because uh, at the end of the day, we are deal-driven, but um, we're not going to sell your mother to get the deal done. We don't charge as much as investment banks charge. And, you know, most of the experience that we bring to bear is from my time operating, not my yeah. time on Wall Street. The other kind of sketchy, not to paint all investment bankers as sketchy, and I was an investment banker for three years, but... 
the actually the other problem I see with companies, you know, investment banks representing late stage startups is if it's not a certain dollar amount, they actually their fees are impacted, and so they just don't care. Right. So they'll sign an engagement letter and then literally do no work. That's right. They'll lock you up, and, and then the, you got to do the work. And you have an eighteen month lock up or tail usually. That's right. Where you pay the investment bank even if they didn't do anything, and so it's this really crummy process for a lot of people. So actually, mm-hmm. when you started SurePath like two years ago, I was like, oh, I totally got what you're doing, and it made so much sense to me. Yep. Um. So let's just kind of take apart some of the stuff you talked about. Sure. Raising early versus raising late. I gave a form of what you're talking about, gave that advice to a startup this morning. I do do this all the time with seed stage companies. And my advice was raise as much money as you can right now because he he was raising 500K and I was like, look, raise at least one, one and a half because you can still sell the dream right now Mm -hmm. versus a year from now, people are actually going to look at your metrics and look and see what you've accomplished. Like, is that what you see at the early stage? Absolutely. I kind of talk about the three P's of fundraising. Uh So people, product, and progress. At the seed stage, you need one of those three. At the Series A, you need two of the three. By the time you get to Series B, you need all three. And at any point in time, if you're going to only have one, progress, i.e. traction. Like traction forgives all sins. Yep. And so certainly at uh, at the seed stage, when it's nothing but promise... You have no accountability for actuals, so yeah. I it's mean, true. It's you totally should true. raise kind of. It's like if food's being served, eat. You know, like if there's capital there to be raised at reasonable terms, then you know you should definitely take it because, yeah. like, I've crunched the data on this for for SaaS companies anyway, mm-hmm. and generally to kind of get to really kind of you know tier one kind of large Series A rounds takes two years. Yeah. But most companies do not raise two years of runway in their seed, which means they're having to go back to the kitty from a position of weakness. Yeah. And either they don't get it done, like only 48% of companies that raise a a seed in SaaS end up raising an A. Yeah. Or they do get it done, but they end up diluting themselves and slowing themselves down. So, And one of the going back to the kitty, which is something else I told the guy today. People don't quite understand this, but seed stage investors are not set up to write multiple checks. They angel investors want to write one check. That's what they allocated to you. And they need you to go have progress and raise another round from big investors. Absolutely. So the problem with going back to the kitty is there's no kitty there. There's no one who wants to be brave and write the check. Now, mm-hmm. sometimes like seeds, there are some seed stage funds that'll do it, but they don't like to do it. And to your point, they make you pay on the valuation. For sure. And, you know, there are some folks like Bullpen Capital that specifically fill that gap between seed and A. But the fact that I can name them specifically tells you how rare that is. Like there's not enough of that. And that's the only one I can name, actually, who likes to do it. Yeah, that's right. But it's a huge gap. And so, you know, I helped run a seed stage fund for three years. And, you know, yes, we were a dedicated seed fund. But if things were run right, we would deploy most of our capital into the companies that got the A's and got the B's. Yep. So that's that's the early stage. Sell the promise. I really like your three P's too. That's really smart. Okay. So early stage, sell the promise, raise as much as you can. Now there's more meat on the bone at the later stage. Like, what kind of advice are you giving the later stage companies, and how are you? You're really taking them through the process. Mm-hmm. Like, can you talk about that? For sure. So, you know, I'll go again. I'll go back to the early stage for one moment. Yeah. Like, I think some of the best CEOs out there 
can get the early stage rounds done really quickly. Like they employ FOMO and signaling and getting these early investors to commit. And there's just this urgency and like, I don't know, two weeks or a month of madness and the thing is done. Yeah. And, you know, kudos to them. But if you decide to raise a Series B, then you are, as a founder, there's a bunch of things. So first of all, you are now committing to build a large company. You're committing to go after a statistically improbable outcome. And I don't want to discourage anyone from building a big company, but I think it should be a considered decision. And so we really like to be involved. Like ideally, like you close the Series A, you party, and like (laughs) you come back to the office on the Monday, you give us a call. And because the more lead time you have to prep for the B, the better. And so what I like companies to do is... You know, again, if you're going to go for like a $20, $30 million check, like if I'm writing that check to you, I want to have lots of exposure to you. I don't want to just come in when the roadshow is happening. What I really want and what we try and set up for our clients is a situation where you can come in to the right growth stage investors. Because the other thing you see at the growth, like at the later stages, is the partners are very specific. Like you'll have a partner who just does nothing but B2B enterprise marketing tech. And they know every company, they know every buyer, and they want time to track you. So if you are a B2B marketing tech company, what we would do is set up a thing where you could go in and tell that partner, my name's Scott, this is my company, this is my vision, here's what I'm going to do over the next two, three quarters. Would you like to be kept up to date? Person's going to say yes because they were the right partner for you to talk Mm -hmm. to. At which point it's on you. If you do what you said you were going to do, you are building credibility. You're getting to the top of the pile. That partner is going to introduce you to some portfolio companies, partly for your benefit, partly for diligence. Yeah. And if you've done that with 10 people, then by the time you get ready to run your roadshow, you have a warm pipeline. You're at the top of everyone's list. And then we can run a proper process yep. and get it done. Yeah. And a- another thing that we like to do at the same time is make sure that your most natural acquirers know who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some cases, that will ultimately result in dual tracking a raise and an exit, or at the very least, you just, you're, you've just you decided to build a big company already having talked to the, the, yeah. the acquirers. Yeah. So you said a ton of really smart stuff there. So a couple things that I just wanted to add. The later stage investors, you're t- you talk about building a track record, which I completely agree. Like, and for them to be able to see the numbers and the numbers build, that's how they build faith in you. And people kind of forget those those investors are writing much bigger checks, mm-hmm. so they don't have as many shots on goal as someone who's doing like seed stage investments. And they have to get those two or three investments they make in a fund correct, or Absolutely. else they are they are like fired. They're out of a no, job. No wasted bullets. They yeah, got like no, one or two new bullets a year. It matters. Yeah. And if they don't, if it doesn't perform, they've wasted $20 million or 30 million, huge amounts of money. That's right. The other point you made, which is another really good one is they will often introduce you to potential customers. And mm-hmm. this happens constantly. And I've had some like smart CEO friends of mine when I was at Lighthouse would be like, Hey, I want to come and pitch you now. Who are five companies you can connect me to as a, so I can be a customer or mm-hmm. so I can sell to them. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a great way to get some revenue traction too. Mm-hmm. And then I really like what you said about, um, no, the acquirers knowing who you are yep. because when I was doing investment banking at Hamburg and Quist 
whenever you're doing kind of a private placement fundraise, you, the advantage of having someone like you involved is you can very casually, you know, all these people, you know, all the business development and corporate development people can very casually just make a phone call and say, have you heard of this company? They should be on your radar. And that's kind of a, uh, a non-intrusive way of seeing if they might want to acquire you. Right. You know, and then, and I kind of want to just circle back to something you said earlier, which is when you raise a series B or series C, you're committing to building a big company. Do you mind mm-hmm. explaining that? I know what you mean, but can you, can you talk about the math involved with that and why you say sure, that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you look at the distribution of exit outcomes, like three quarters of exit outcomes have no disclosed value and like maybe sub 10% of, dis- of disclosed outcomes have north of 100 million. Yeah. But if you think about now, so I am a growth stage investor. I wrote a $20 million check. I own 10% of your business. Like if you don't sell for a massive outcome, it's completely irrelevant to me. Yeah. You know, like 200 million and up Yeah, and like 600 million, in fact, to get the multiples. And Mm -hmm. so if you think about the companies that sell for 600 and can deliver me my target return, they're few and far between. Uh, So it's just the the stakes are really high. Yeah. And that target return is what... you need as a growth investor to like stay in the partnership and be relevant and stay alive and continue investing. That's right. And it's like those guys, like you said, they just don't have any wasted bullets. They have to get a return Mm -hmm. on those things. And, and they're not, I think one other thing that people don't always understand, and and this is always negotiable in a, in a, in a term sheet or document, but oftentimes the last stage of investors, they'll have provisions that, you effectively need their permission to sell a company. Like yep. they're not going to let you just take their money and then decide when to sell. That's they correct. will have either a vote as a share class or some other mechanism that keeps you from selling the company. Mm-hmm. So unless they're happy, you're not selling the company. Yeah. So if we go back to our FreshBooks days, so Mike, the CEO there had a saying that I heard from him at least once a month. <laughs> There's two things you need to succeed in life and business, alignment and shared values. Yep. If you have that, the rest is easy. Yep. And so if you think about now, so you as a founder, you've got opportunity cost. This is your you know, sweat, blood, and tears. You've been in it forever, but you have no hard dollar cost. And then you contrast that with this investor who just put 20 million bucks in. If you look at your slice of the cap table, it's worth a lot and there's a bunch of there's a range of outcomes where you're happy and you don't have to worry about your family and you've got a house and all yep. that stuff. But for that investor, the range of outcomes that matter is far far smaller. And so there are can absolutely be situations where you're not in alignment. And yeah. so if that investor has a blocking right, you're kind of you know you got some tough conversations yeah. to have. How how do you neg- navigate that, negotiate that? Is it really just setting the expectations with the founder before you do, you know, you introduce them to the investors that like this is what you're getting into? Are you sure you want to do this kind of? Yeah, I think good strategy kind of begins with the end in mind and works back. Mm-hmm. So when we are modeling with companies, we at the very least model what the next round looks like and so we're setting pricing for this round, uh, looking at where the company's expecting to perform, looking at where price media, price revenue multiples are and making sure that we're not screwing ourselves. Yeah. And we're feeling really good today because valuation's high, but then teeing up a possible down round next time. Yeah. So that's table stakes. Can you talk so, about just the down round, like the mechanics of that, like how a company could screw themselves right now? Because I don't know if people always understand that. Yeah, I think, you know, so... If, Valuations have gone up and down. Uh, I think they're not 
totally frothy now, but they're warm. And so there could be a situation where, like, so we have a client right now that is closing a really competitive round. And the valuation very quickly got above target. Uh, and that's a great deal. But that client, now we've had very clear conversations. It's, okay, this deal is going to close at this value. This is what your monthly recurring revenue needs to hit and your growth rate needs to hit mm-hmm. in order for you to maintain or you know grow your 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 revenue multiple. Yep. And basically, you know, and this you know they're closing this round from a tier 1 investor and there's another dynamic there as well which is I hate to say it but it's like, you know, it's the secret handshake, right? It's a very much an insider club. And so if you are a tier 1 fund and you led, I don't know, let's say the series A, you don't want a tier three fund leading the series B. You want like the same tier. Yeah. Okay? There's just a ton of ego. Yeah. And so that actually. And that t- other tier one won't pay up uh, on a high enough multiple of the last round unless the, the numbers are there. That's right. That's right. And so everything's got to work because the, the other dynamic is, is so if you've raised some money and then you're out raising the next round by yourself versus having the investor who first backed you like opening up his or her Rolodex yeah. and paving the way, you're screwed. Yeah. It's a total negative signal. The investors yeah. know it. They know your investor's not behind you. The deal's dead. Yep. And so you have to think about all of that when you're closing this round. You can't just get excited because someone's willing to pay up. Mm-hmm. You have to actually realize that all of the risk is still ultimately on yourself to execute yeah and maybe don't maximize valuation to the nth degree take something that's fair that leaves you some room to grow that's right yeah it's it's crazy i see people maximizing valuation to their Mm -hmm. own detriment like all the time And, and it depends if you're just building to flip then maybe you're a little less concerned and you'll tolerate being out of alignment for a while but you know in most cases good things to actually take time. Yeah. If you're trying to build a real company, you have to create a financial strategy for good times and bad yeah. and for missing plan, which you'll do all the time. Yep. You know, you have to create wiggle room. Yeah. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the metrics. Like you guys focus on SMB, like the end customers SMB. So yep. like software providers that sell to small businesses. Yep. So what are some of the metrics you focus on? And I, I still remember when you sent me, I knew, I knew when we met on FreshBooks or talked on the phone, I, you sent me this amazing spreadsheet, which is like every investor's dream. Cause you basically laid out all the metrics for me. It took me like 10 minutes to realize I wanted to do something with FreshBooks because your spreadsheet <laughs> was so good. It was, it was that good. Can you talk about what that looks like and the metrics that you focus on? Sure. I'm actually going to take a little tangent. First of all, I'll yeah. talk about why we focus on SMB, yeah. and then I'll talk Please. about the metrics. So so at SurePath, we, we really do two sectors. We do software as a service companies, and we do e-commerce companies. But within that, we have a deep focus on companies where the end customer is a smaller mid-sized yeah. business. And we do that, first of all, because it's the world I know best from my time at Shopify mm-hmm. and FreshBooks. Also, most of my investments uh, at Real Ventures were SMB, SaaS. But more fundamentally, you know, if you look at the small business market, so like there's 30 million small businesses in the U.S., 60 million in the English speaking countries, 600 million globally. Yeah. There's a first of all, it's an evergreen market. There's like three million new businesses started every year. Mm -hmm. Every one of them needs email marketing, a domain, a website like there's these, you know, accounting, accounting software. Right. Like so there's there's these markets where. They're just evergreen, and they're too large for any one company to dominate. So mm-hmm. if you think about FreshBooks, where I just came from prior to starting SurePath, you know, again, 30 million small businesses in the U.S. Intuit has 5 million of them. 
even though it started three decades before. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you contrast that to enterprise software markets and especially consumer software markets, those markets tend to have a shorter half-life and a market winner is established relatively quickly, yeah. you know? And so, so I really like, first of all, the evergreen nature of, of the market and just how large it is. Mm-hmm. And then, and what that means as a founder is there's different paths to succeeding mm-hmm. in SMB. Mm-hmm. You could choose to raise the big venture rounds and go for it and blow it up, mm-hmm. or you could choose to do what the 37 Signals guys do and just bootstrap yep. and go with a certain amount every yep. year, mm-hmm. and the market's always going to be there for yeah. you, right? So really like that. And I also think there's a real turnover in the market. You know, like older generations of entrepreneurs were very happy running their business on like pen and paper and Word and Excel. Mm-hmm. But the new generation are going to assume whatever need they have, there's an app for that. They're yep. going to look on their phone. They're going to look on Google. They're going to find it and try it. And so I think many categories of SMB software are going to explode. Mm-hmm. I think the final thing I'll say, you know, especially when it comes to selling businesses, you know, our hope at SurePath is to be, you know, without a doubt, the leading advisor in the SMB software space and to have the deepest relationships and access to help our companies get into the right buyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that... You can only have that level of access and insight if you're specialized. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's just a thing that we think yeah. about. Anyway, that's a big tangent. A, you made a ton of good points, though. But we see this. One of the reasons we're successful is because Vanessa, you know, before anyone even knew who Gusto or Expensify or Bill.com was five years ago, she had found all these companies and right. knew it made her life a lot easier as an accountant and then started putting all of our clients on it. And right. so it really kind of optimized all these startups that were using like crappy payroll solutions or crappy accounting or whatever it was. So I totally mm-hmm. relate to like the, the founders or any kind of only starting a business is going to look to technology as a solution for sure because it makes them so much more efficient and then they can spend their time on doing what they love, what they got into business to do, which is build the company. That's exactly right. So, I mean, back at FreshBooks, I met Josh from Gusto back when it yeah, was Zen payroll sure. back yeah. when I didn't even think he had an office cause we kept just meeting in South park and we'd go for walks, but, like if you look at even so the payroll there would never have been a happy at you know ADP customer like ever ever right? but now ever. people are raving about gusto yeah right? so and, and that's just going to keep happening across many yeah. product well they brought design and they brought good customer service to this market that had never experienced it it's kind of that's that right. simple it's amazing yep. that's right yeah okay so i interrupted you sorry so about metrics that. yes yeah please. so the big thing, so again, like the big criticism that investors have about the SMB market is, you know, churn. You these small customers, they come and they go. It's hard to acquire them, hard to keep them. And so the unit economic math doesn't mm-hmm. work. And so there's a few things that really matter. And again, SMB can mean everything from that solopreneur who works from home to like 100, even 500 person mm-hmm. companies like HubSpot sells to SMB, but has Mm -hmm. very large agency customers. Mm -hmm. So it's a very wide definition of customers, I Mm -hmm. guess. And so if you think about the monthly recurring revenue, that could be a wide range. That could be like a $10 a month product. It could be a $500 Mm -hmm. a month product. And so Mm -hmm. I like to think of it more in terms of key ratios. So Mm -hmm. like long-term value over cost to acquire. Mm -hmm. And long-term value in this case being how much you charge per month times the number of months you keep them times your gross margin equals the lifetime value Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. you. Divide that by your fully loaded cost to acquire. So what mm-hmm. you have paid in marketing to get the lead, if you have a sales team, you know, the bodies, yep. the sales and marketing bodies, mm-hmm. so a fully loaded cost. Mm-hmm. If you are below 3x, really tough. That's the magic number. Yeah. If you are even 3x, you're good, you're not great. Yeah. 
And I think 4X and up, you're starting to be interested. Yeah. So I really target 4X. And then the flip side of that is targeting a 12-month or less payback, payback. on mm-hmm. your CAC. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, on the churn, if you're... There's two ways to think about churn. There's like logos, the amount of just customers that quit, and then revenue, how much le- revenue mm-hmm. that's lost. Mm-hmm. And so on a pure logo basis... If you have more than 3% of your customers leaving every month, mm-hmm. it's just a lot of gravity. Yeah. It's yeah. like a hamster wheel. You're just running to stay in one place. Yeah. And yeah. it's maybe easy to replace those today. But imagine when you're five times the size that you are, mm-hmm. the absolute number of customers that you have to replace yeah. just to like stay flat. Yeah becomes really big yeah you know that's the math though if, if you can do i mean a 5x I, I was fortunate to invest in a couple of 5x 5x businesses over my career and those companies kicked ass and they were huge wins and investors know within one minute of what they're looking for when they they meet mm-hmm. a, a company with this recurring revenue model and they can do the math on the customer acquisition costs and yep. if it's above three you're in play and if you can get four or five you're a great company Yeah. And so again, if you think about SMB specifically, there's only a few ways to really build a large company in SMB. So one is to have, you know, a very low cost of acquisition Mm -hmm. driven by some kind of viral loop. Think of MailChimp or Dropbox, Mm -hmm. right? The product is inherently viral and just through use of it, it drives new users. The second is to kind of just tough it out on one product and then build enough of a customer base that you can buy or build other products yep. to cross sell. Mm-hmm. That's what GoDaddy and does. raise the custom, raise the revenue per client. That's right. Yeah. You know, big, now you're selling new things to customers you've already paid mm-hmm. for. So that's what GoDaddy does. That's mm-hmm. why they have so many lines of business. Yep. It's why they're acquisitive. Uh, a third is to build channel. Like there's only so far that your direct response. You know, you can only do Google AdWords so far before your incremental cost of yep. acquiring that next customer equals their LTV. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so, again, if you look in the accounting software world, you know, a third of Intuit's revenue comes from channel. Totally. And if you think about small businesses, they don't have IT departments. So it may seem old school to you, but there's value added resellers around the Google ecosystem, Mm -hmm. around the Microsoft ecosystem Mm -hmm. who are basically the IT department for small businesses. Yeah. And we're the channel for all the accounting software. I mean, we have every, you know, there's a reason why all these guys have done this podcast, you know, because they want to message out to our clients and say, you should be using X, Y, and Z software because it's the best. And we're doing all the education on behalf of Intuit and Expensify and Bill.com and and Gusto. Yeah. It's amazing. So what are there, are there any lessons from building the, or, you know, looking at those three, the three prongs of increasing your revenue, low cost of acquisition or, or channel that, that you've seen work really well over the years? Uh, for sure. Yeah. A lot. I mean, like how does Shopify get going? Like, and by the way, thank you for working at Shopify because <laughs> I ended up buying the stock after I went, did an IPO and it's nice. done phenomenally well. <laughs> yeah. So because of that connection, I actually bought the stock. So thank oh, you. Good. But like, what, what does Shopify do so well to, to become this huge company? Yeah, I think um, it's many, many things. I think, you know, if you break them down, like, first of all, all great outcomes, like timing and luck are a material portion. And like there were Yahoo sites and there was plenty of places to go and build a a website before an e-commerce site before Shopify showed up. But they came with a fundamentally better product Mm -hmm. with a real emphasis on design. And there's an important element there, which is, so again, if we take SMB, right, you know, massive, massive market, if you try and build this horizontal Swiss army knife that serves all of that market, you're really serving no one. Yep. 
And what Shopify did right out of the gate was it really focused on highly technical, highly design-oriented early mm, adopters. So mm-hmm. Toby, uh, the founder and CEO, is one of the original contributors to Rails. Oh, my and gosh. he oh, really man. leveraged that community for their early customers. Yeah. Uh, one of his co-founders, Daniel, is a professional photographer. And long be- like everyone talks about design now. But they had a huge emphasis on design long before yeah. it was kind of yeah. as buzzy as it is yeah. now. So that was that was so I guess. But I do remember that from Shopify early days. Like the products on the retailer sites looked better, way better, and and that's probably what that was it. Probably you know I, again many things go into a successful company, but mm-hmm. that was you know my friend who runs a number two guy at Sports Basement. They use Shopify. That's a big, big mm-hmm. e-commerce operation. Yep. And they looked at every kind of e-commerce, op- you know, software they could use. And Shopify, even though it was like way cheaper than everything else, was the best. Absolutely. Yeah. And the segmentation is so important. Yeah. Like, and being able to say no to things that don't fit. Like I, you know, I was involved with them in the early days. But even way back then, they had really big merchants approaching them and mm-hmm. saying, hey, we want to build on your platform. Yeah. But, you know, you're need to going to have this service level agreement and we need this feature and we need that feature and it seemed tempting but to their credit they said no yeah and now they have shopify plus now they do cater to those those merchants but they did when they were ready yeah so the segmentation and the focus yeah that's really smart saying no is really important i mean we're not shopify but at cruise consulting we do the same thing like we i get people calling who are llc's or s corps like chewing us out on the phone because we don't we don't work with those companies and they don't quite understand but it's like I learned that kind of the hard way. You have to focus on your core market. And then, then over time, like you said, Spotify plus and things, I'm sure FreshBooks is doing stuff like that too, where FreshBooks is the same way, you know, FreshBooks is, so if you kind of open up FreshBooks and you open up QuickBooks, you're going to see the very different things like Mm -hmm. QuickBooks. You can account for any kind of business. Yep. FreshBooks, you really can't. And so FreshBooks insight was that, First of all, accounting software is built for accountants, Accountants, not for business owners. (laughs) And so if you want to make it something that a business owner can understand, it's got to be simple. And so they made a very clear decision only to focus on service-based businesses. So people who sell their time and expertise for a living. Uh, And so, yeah, to your point about these, you know, turning down these S-corps, like anyone who like, you know, any retailer, restaurant, manufacturer can't use FreshBooks yep. and that they're totally fine with that. Yep. And there's a, there's a bajillion people that fit FreshBooks market. And so yeah. it's actually very lucrative, but two thirds of the economy. In yeah. The it's amazing. I remember you showing me that chart and explaining that to me. Yeah. Transitioning to like selling the company or doing, talking to acquirers, like what are the, what are the things you message there and, and how do you go about doing that? Yeah. So first of all, just to kind of set the stage, I guess, like there's so much that's written about fundraising mm-hmm. and yet we struggle to raise capital. Mm-hmm. There's almost nothing that's written about how to sell your company. And mm-hmm. so for most founders and management teams, it's a total black art, black box. It's emotional, um, lots of highs and lows. And you're not really teed up for success doing it by yourself because you're like negotiating with your future employer and you've never done it before. And you're picturing the Ferrari you're going to buy. And anyway, that's just a whole bunch. And it could be snatched away from you at any moment because they could walk away. Of course. Yeah. Right up until they hit the wire. Yeah. You know? There's a few things to keep in mind. I think, first of all, recognize that if you've raised a dime of venture capital, you have signed up to exit the business. And Totally agree. Yeah. So, totally agree. And, and so, you know, great product doesn't just get built. Management team members don't just get hired. Marketing campaigns don't just happen. Anything that's significant has to be thought of. 
and has to be proactive. And that's true about your exit strategy as well. And you have to, even if you intend to build the next Shopify, you have to realize, I think, that first of all, the odds are against you. And to maximize, you know, a big thing I talk to our, our founders about all the time is optionality. It's not that I want you to sell early, mm-hmm. but I sure do want you to have the choice. Mm-hmm. And so that if you just decide that I'm tired or it's not fun anymore, or a buyer's just offered me a, a value that's going to take me three years to get, or market's collapsing, yeah. I see, you yeah. know, like I want you to have the optionality. Yeah. Yeah. And so a big thing that we encourage for our companies. So again, if I contrast what we do to a standard investment bank, if you hire a standard investment bank, it's clear you're for sale. Yeah. You can say whatever you want, you're for sale. Yeah. You know, we have a different approach and because we're super focused on SMB and we're, you know, we're talking to Intuit and Square all the time, you know, I'm here in SF this week and I'm off to meet Square tomorrow mm-hmm. and you know, like we have ongoing conversations with those folks, then it's a different context. We can simply say, here's a company that should be on your radar screen. Very often we know actually what their priorities are. Yeah. And where we can tee up conversations, you know, a dynamic that we like to tee up for our companies is to have our CEOs talk to the corp dev and kind of product and line of business leaders two, three, four times a year. Just regular updates. Mm -hmm. And out of the gate, those are kind of one-way conversations. It's our clients telling them what's Mm -hmm. going on. But over time, uh, especially if it's a big platform like a Salesforce and you've got joint customers and there's Mm -hmm. integrations and there's kind Mm -hmm. of meat on the bone. Those are going to become two-way conversations. But the importance of doing that long before you actually want to actually have an exit is, you know, you can never actually figure out the timing on the buy side. Yeah. You don't know what their roadmap is. Yeah. You don't know what their issues are. So if you just run a process, you're hoping the timing's going to work, it ha- but it's probably it ha- not. Yeah, because so, so many times they're just not, They the CEO has said, we're not buying anything for the next six months right. or something like that. Like, like something arbitrary that like you just have no idea fundraising and exits right so you decide you want to raise money as long as you have you know a big market you've got the team you've got the metrics and the growth rate then there's a whole bunch of investors who are in the business of looking at that and they're going to invest you yeah. know, on a probabilities yeah. basis whereas if you want to exit regardless of the merits of your business you actually have to fit a strategic gap that a buyer has identified now a gap that can be filled faster through acquisition than through building. Like timing really matters. Yeah, and it has to be at a price that they're willing to sign up for. That's right. And so you will never know unless you like bug their offices and hack their email system. (laughs) Which you should not do. Priorities are, yeah, not advocating that. And so the solution to that is to make sure they know about you. And again, because we are focused and because we're talking to those folks all the time then we can let them know hey by the way you know xyz companies you know we're about to go help them raise a series mm-hmm, b mm-hmm. i thought you should know the unwritten message by the way is if you're ever going to make a move on that company now's the time it's yeah. never going to be cheaper yeah and they already know that company if we've done our job right mm-hmm. so there's because the other dynamic you know if you look at kind of acquisitions so the rule of thumb is basically about half of acquisitions don't work. They don't meet mm-hmm. the targeted mm-hmm. objectives. Now, the value that is created out of the ones that do work is so vastly, yep. you know, out, so vastly outweighs the value that is lost on the ones that doesn't work. That's why deals yep. happen. Mm-hmm. 
I think where maybe I'm anticipating, but after that Series A, before they've been marked up on a Series B, is a great time to buy a company because the mm-hmm. price is still semi-reasonable. Right. The moment they take the Series B, you have to pay two or three X that Series B valuation for Absolutely. that investor to get their return. Yeah, so the that, company that actually, just overnight became more costly. Exactly. And that actually brings up an interesting... Like There are times that where a startup has a higher probability of selling. Mm-hmm. So if you think of like... So about a one million in ARR, then you have enough traction that the product is proven. You've probably raised a seed round or maybe a seed in an extension. It's a team and technology buy. Those aren't the biggest outcomes, but they're like the bread and butter outcomes that yeah. happen all the time. Yeah. Then you decide to raise a Series A, and let's say you're like at two, three million. You're too expensive to be a technology buy, but you're too small to be a line of business. Mm-hmm. You actually have to build up to be now around ten million in value earn revenue to be a thing that is proven enough with a management team that a buyer can take it and run it as a product line yep. inside their organization. Mm-hmm. So you have this like no man's land in between kind of 1 million and 10 million mm-hmm. of revenue. And then, you know, usually like a 10 million revenue run rate, you raise a series B and then, yeah, you're really expensive. Yeah. It's going to be a full on line of business, yeah. a new division for the acquirer. Yep. Right? A big deal. Yeah. What are some of the, and, and uh, I want to be respectful of your time here, but you're doing such an awesome job and keeping it going. What are some things that, you know, some issues you help founders avoid with those potential acquirers? You know, like, are there any hot spots that you have to coach them and say, Ooh, don't say that. Here's how you want to present yourself. Uh, yeah. I, I look at it differently. Like, sorry, at the end of the day, like I think founders can whip themselves into a frenzy if they're trying to anticipate what the other side wants and mm-hmm. trying to like i don't know change their spots it's so a little I, bit like dating right you don't yeah. want to marry someone who thought they were marrying somebody else that's it so i don't yeah. really advocate that yeah i do try and preview kind of this is how a buyer is going to be thinking yeah. about this and these are the things that matter yeah but at the end of the day you go in and talk about your vision and why you built the company and you know how you operate yeah. and if if they like that, great. Because if yeah. they don't, if you tell them what they want to hear, they're going to find out anyway, and then it's going to be a nightmare, and then you're locked up. So it's more about helping them understand the process. Like, So first of all, if a corporate development person contacts you out of the blue, it means nothing. It doesn't mean they actually want to buy you, so don't you know, yeah. breathe just like... <laughs> It's all good. You know? It's just like a VC calling you. It's, yeah. it's fine. They're that's, testing the waters and they're trying to learn something about the market. That's right. But it's, you know, the decision to sell the company is, is really a, it's a personal one, even though you have all these other stakeholders. So we're there really as a sounding board to help them make sure it's the right thing. Yeah. Uh, and then the process, you know, if, you, if you've raised money, there's a certain level of due diligence. But if you sell your company... It's the ultimate anal probe, to be honest. You know, like you'll have an army of people that will descend upon you. And there's lots of areas where these deals can go wrong. Yeah. You know, first of all, to the extent that you said one thing in the selling process and it doesn't pan out in diligence, that's an issue. Very often, you know, if you think about, and again, I'll put my old FreshBooks accounting hat on, you know, like no one starts a business in order to run a back office. They start it because they're passionate about a, yep. a product, a customer problem. Mm-hmm. But every startup that raises capital has a board of directors who have information requirements and they want financial statements and they want budgets and, you know, filings have to happen. And guess what? On an exit, if that company hasn't remitted their sales taxes, the directors are personally liable. It's just a whole bunch of things. And very often the buyer will commit quality of earnings report. And a big issue that we run into 
especially with our really early stage companies that are thinking about eggs or even just getting ready for Series B. Because basically their back office isn't up yeah, to snuff. Yeah. And so that's when we want them to engage with folks like yourself. Get that, you know, like if you think about the core of a startup, the core of a startup is building a product and selling a product. And everything else is in support of that, including the back office. Mm-hmm. And it's not that it's not important, but it should be outsourced to a certain point. Yeah. You know? I mean, all this is a shameless plug here, but, w- you know, we that's what we do. That's what we live for. And I always tell founders, like, I love doing that stuff for them because I know how hard it is for them. And I know how good we are at it. And it's really comes down to Vanessa just being amazing at business processes and setting up the whole architecture. But when companies work with us, what they're really getting is the benefit of processes that are applied over 160 companies, you know, and that's like very, very tough to beat. And, you know, like I, we were talking before we got on the mic that we have a couple of companies getting bought right now. And like, you got to make sure, you know, that the accounting is done correctly. That's right. And that everything is done gap wise. And you just don't want to me- unintentionally mess up your accounting because you're trying to save a couple thousand bucks. Yeah. In the it'll early come back companies. and bite you. Oh, it's like horrible. I said, if you've raised a dime of venture capital, you have signed up for an exit. Yeah. You're something's going to happen. And you think about startup life, it comes down to these few big moments. They all involve lawyers and they involve expense. So don't, don't get in the way of that. Basically, yeah. And, and also like the accountability, we actually find that most companies come to us after they raise like 500 K or a million dollars of capital because the investors do want reporting, but that reporting the investors are requiring is not just kind of for their own knowledge. It's like real, they're introducing real accountability to the yep. founders and that accountability is it may be painful at first but it's actually really good training for mm-hmm. the acquisition and like doing your financials on a weekly basis as you get become a bigger company and right. presenting to the board constantly that makes that presentation to the corporate development people so much easier and you have all the data like one of the most rewarding things for us is one of these companies is getting bought in in our clients we, we literally just had to, they, they, their investment bankers were like freaking out because they asked the, the diligence request was super long. We filled that diligence request in three hours wow. because we had all the reports. We had every, and again, that's not me. That's Vanessa knowing how to do this stuff and setting it up correctly. But like, that's a really strong signal to the acquirer that you're a well-run company. It really helps you. Which I think, you know, really makes a deal happen because yeah. right? these deals are, are risky, right? They, so and, if you feel like it's emotional. well, well yeah. run, that's, you know, at the end of the day, you're selling trust. Yeah. So that's real fast before we go. Can we talk about your DJ career? Oh God. <laughs> where, where can people find the mixes? I already know cause I listen to it sometimes when I'm working and, uh, and were the, the lights too bright? Like what happened? You all know? right. Yeah. So first of all, um, yeah, I'm a massive electronic music head. I love deep house and tech house, not the really commercial stuff, but the more underground stuff. And so, I actually had a side career for a long time, well into my time in startups, playing in nightclubs and after hours parties. Uh, I stopped that when I became a dad, Um, (laughs) but I still do a mix online once a month, uh, soundcloud.com slash DJ Mark McLeod. I even actually played in a club uh, in December. I used to host a party for the startup community in Montreal. And I went back and and played at that party in December last year. I highly recommend, I follow you on SoundCloud and I get those and that's why I asked, but it's, it's awesome stuff. And it's really cool that someone can be so good at finance and so good at M and a and fundraising and also have that really creative side on the music side. Well, I'm not going to quit my day job. (laughs) Can you just to wrap up, can you tell everyone to find where to find SurePath and the, the quick recap? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, surepathcapital.com, that's our site. Uh, we put out a newsletter once a month for CEOs and VCs and corporate development executives. You could sign up for that. You can find me on Twitter at Startup CFO, even though I'm no longer one. And I uh, would love to hear from you. And your index is really good, actually. The, Thank you. Mark has created an index of all the best SMB companies and how they trade publicly. Yep. And I just got your newsletter yesterday, I think, and they were up like 16% for the year. Yeah, the, like the index performing. gained 16% last year, yeah. beating the, the NASDAQ and the Dow Jones. And, you know, there's a thing there. Like, it's funny. If you look at after uh, the Trump election in November, the big uh, kind of legacy manufacturing companies rallied a little bit. But before that, the SMB-focused companies like ADP, which is the largest company by market cap that serves SMB, mm-hmm. were outperforming the other you know, broader kind of industrial companies. And I think there's a lesson there, which is goes back to what I was saying earlier about these, the customers and the markets they serve being evergreen. You know, this is like people always need yeah. payroll software. Yep. Like these companies are just so stable. They just consistently grow X percent a year. They consistently deliver X amount of, you know, earnings per share. And that's really valuable to to the market, right? It's valuable to the market and valuable to entrepreneurs everywhere. It makes everyone's life easier. Mark McLeod, thank you for coming on. Check out SurePath Capital. And I can testify how good you are, what you do. Worked with you many different times. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me.